Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. I don't know about you, but I feel like Middle Tennessee turned green practically overnight. And with that, all the bugs seem to be out in full force. Today, we're going to help you learn to identify which bushes and which beetles are actually invasive species, like the emerald ash borer, which experts predict could wipe out our native ash trees if we're not careful. More on that later in the hour. But first, school board election primaries are in full swing. This year marks the first time candidates will have their party affiliation next to their name on the ballot. Here to help break down what that means exactly is WPLN education reporter Juliana Kim. Juju, thanks for being here. Hello. Good to be here. Wonderful to have you with us. So I understand some parents and lawmakers pushed for party labels. Tell us, what was their motivation? Good question. Um, But I kind of want to start out just explaining what school boards do. You know, their main role is to ensure student and parent needs are met. And they do that by deciding on the annual budget, hiring and evaluating the uh, superintendent and adopting district-wide policies. Uh, But recently issues that have landed on their desk were also hot button political issues uh, like COVID measures and what to teach kids about race and history. So last year, Republican lawmakers said, hey, if these issues at schools are gonna be political, maybe it's important to know what school board members' political affiliations are too. So they passed a law that allows counties to offer school board primaries and partisan elections. But it's important to remember it's not mandatory. So there are still a handful of places where school board elections are not partisan. Well, how are parents feeling about this overall? Uh, Yeah, you know, I'd say it's mixed. You know, some parents are for it. They believe party uh, labels are going to help them make an informed decision on which candidate to elect. And they're hoping that's going to help ease tensions between them and their school board representatives. But others are also against it. You know, they say the opposite's going to happen. They say that it's going to actually create further division in their school boards. And they say that, uh, you know, and how do they know that? They point to the dysfunction that we see in our state legislators as hints of what we can expect. One of the parents you spoke with is Anani Gutierrez, a mom in Williamson County who said she's actually going to vote for the first time this year. This is maybe the most exciting election that I can vote for the first time is exactly because of that, because I want to still feel welcome and I want my kids to feel welcome. So what's inspiring her to go to the polls? You know, unfortunately, this past year, there's been a lot of divisiveness in our schools. And, you know, I say, you know, it's kind of reasonable, right? What we teach our kids and making sure our kids feel comfortable are important to talk about. But what I hear most commonly is that a lot of parents felt their voice wasn't being heard through their school board. And this election cycle is an opportunity to confront that and feel like they have some agency again. You know, you mentioned it a little bit, but the pandemic began. School board meetings have become this battleground for the political culture wars. Give me a little bit more detail. How has that really affected this year's election cycle? 
Well, the main big change is that, you know, some folks who uh, voted already might have seen that uh, school board members are part of the primaries here in Nashville. Um, but we're also, interestingly enough, seeing a handful of candidates run as independents. And it's not because they consider themselves true independents, but it's uh, because they are protesting partisan elections entirely. Uh, so they, you know, they're saying they're arguing that partisan school boards are going to do more harm than good. And they're hoping that the independent label is going to counteract some of that inevitable partisanship. Well, what type of reactions are they getting from potential voters? Yeah, um, you know, it's been a host of feelings. Candidates told me that some really respect their decision of running as an independent. Others feel skeptical, right? Thinking, no, you know, this candidate is secretly a Democrat or a, Repu a Republican. But I think something important to remember is that a lot of the things that school members actually vote on are inherently not very political. And so just for fun, I pulled up Williamson County's most recent school board agenda. And the things that school board members uh, kind of weighed in on are amendments to high school graduation credits and report cards. And so I think the best thing that parents, voters, candidates can do during this election cycle is to become well-versed on what schools can and can't do and what school board members' main responsibilities are. You know, that way we can just have more informed and appropriate discussions uh, during the, uh, the election. If you're pulling up school board agendas for fun, we're gonna have to pick up chess, Juju. <laughs> um, early voting is underway and May 3rd primary is next week. So tell me, how do you think this is all gonna affect voter turnout? You know, uh, people like Anai, right, they're really motivated to vote. And so I'm hoping, you know, I just believe that everyone should vote and uh, be able to uh, exercise that right. I'm hope I, you know, I think there we're going to see maybe some interesting turnout from folks who haven't voted before. Uh, but, you know, I'll be honest, I think it's just too soon to tell. There's hasn't been a lot of partisan school boards in our country. It's actually a relatively new phenomenon. And so we're really going to see the impact of that in real time here in Tennessee. Juliana Kim is WPLN education reporter. You can check out her story on the school board elections at WPLN.org. Thank you for your reporting, Juju. We have to take a short break. When we come back, it's time to bug out. We're going to be taking a long look at the invasive species in our backyards. If you have a question about invasive bugs, tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Let's say you are in your backyard and you see some metallic green colored beetles around. Pretty? Yes. But there's a good chance that the beetle is the emerald ash borer, a particularly dangerous bug for our native trees. Now, something to know about me, I love bugs. They don't bother me one bit. But my next guests are here to tell us about some bugs we should be bothered by because they're damaging our local ecosystem. Jennifer Smith is a horticulturist for Metro Nashville. Jennifer, thanks for being here. 
Okay. Thank you for having me. Oh, such a pleasure to have you. And Dr. Kashalia Amara Sekara is an assistant professor for the TSU College of Agriculture. She specializes in exotic invasive pets. Kashalia, welcome to This is Nashville. So I'm just going to say that I started to like uh, insects when I was an adult. Uh, when I was young, it was something else that I wanted to do. But for my bachelor's, I studied entomology, the subject. Still, it was not favorite subject. But after just after graduate, I was hired for um, as a research entomologist for Sri Lanka Department of Agriculture, where I was born and raised. And it was a research position, but I we will have to um, help the growers. They come to us and ask, bring their problems. And we go and visit them and then start trying to solve their problems. And, and it was very rewarding. And I thought I would, uh, I would continue it as a, as, as a career. It's a very fulfilling job. So then I came to US to study uh, for the go to grad school to study entomology. And uh, my PhD program, I studied uh, two invasive pest species while I was at the University of Florida. And uh, it, was, it was really uh, a great experience. And I continue to work on uh, invasive species and other pest species, as well as some good bugs. So tell me, how do these invaders, these invader bugs, how do they make it here in the first place? So it can be different ways. Sometimes like natural things like hurricanes can bring them with the winds. Like I was in Florida, so it's like an invasive capital of the, the world. Everything comes and then moves to other, uh, other northern states. Uh, and also uh, we can bring them with other, uh, not purposely, but being with the shipments of uh, crops or other, other systems when from through the ships or the, the, the air cargo. And also people are not aware that uh, they are not supposed to bring any plant plants to, from country to country. Sometimes they bring plants and then with the plants, you can bring some bugs as well. So tell me, what are some of the most common invasive species of insects that are here in Middle Tennessee? So one of the common ones uh, is a kudzu bug. That is uh, one of the main uh, uh, pest species for soybean. And soybean is one of the main, um, most important uh, field crop for Tennessee. Uh, so uh, that was found here in, in 2012, but initially it came to US uh, in 2009. So we call this species exotic invasive species because uh, exotic means they came from somewhere else to the country. So, and this particular bug, uh, moved from uh, uh, Georgia to other Southern states and then first found in Tennessee, in East Tennessee, uh, in Southern, Southern, some of the few Southern counties and then gradually respect to other areas of the state and then moved to Middle Tennessee and, and also to West Tennessee where we grow most of our soybeans. What does the kudzu bug look like? It's, the, it's, it's like a little bit the size of a, Asian lady beetles, everybody knows Asian lady beetles, but it's more like a square, little bit uh, uneven square shape. Um, they have, adults have wings, so they can, they're strong flyers, they can fly. Uh, they have kind of like a smell if you smash them or squish them, it can have a, make a stain uh, and also they, they can smell as well. Okay, so on that list is the emerald ash borer. Jennifer, you are one yes. of the leading experts in the region. Tell me about this bug. Well, it came here from Asia and it's thought to have come in packing crates, perhaps using, you know, shipping across 
maybe a television and the crate they put it in was um, an ash tree that had the um, emerald ash borer in it. And so it made its way to Tennessee um, after landing in Michigan in about 2010. And one way um, we think it got there was it was at a, a, a truck stop. And so people move wood uh, for fire, you know, for camping. And we think that the larvae of, of the boar was in there and then they moved it and dropped it off at the truck stop. And then it moves, it can also fly, but it was spotted here first in Davidson County in 2014. So it's, um, it's, it's an epidemic we're having here and 100% of our native ash, unless they are treated, will die. And the problem there, of course, um, is we have thousands and thousands and thousands of ash trees in our county, but they have a tendency to um, perhaps snap over, which is called the ash snap. And that is where we want our citizens to be aware of the hazard that is associated with this tree as it um, dies. And so um, to be aware, do they have an ash? Well, what does an ash look like? Well, one thing that um, is easy to determine is looking up into the sky. And most branches on trees are alternate. But for the ash tree, it's opposite. So if you have a branch that goes out one side, you have a branch that goes out the other side. And maples and dogwoods also have this op opposite pattern. But that's one way, you know, just looking up into the tree. Um, they have leaflets. They have little leaflets um, that make up one big leaf. And they, um, the sad thing too is that they're um, beautiful. The bark is this handsome gray as it gets older. And if you step back and look at it, it has a diamond shaped pattern. So we're really losing a treasure in, in, our, in our woods and in our residence. Two questions for you. Can you tell us what the emerald ash borer looks like? And then tell me what are some signs that this may be attacking our ash trees? Yes, it's very small and very hard to see. Um, it's an emerald green about the size of a cooked grain piece of rice. Wow, so you that's can tell. Small. Yeah, yes. And so um, they fly um, and they'll land on the bark of an ash tree. And when the eggs hatch, they lay their eggs there and, and the eggs hatch, they bore into the tree and the larvae eat that outer um, layer right under the bark of the tree. And that is the area where the um, nutrients and water goes up into the tree to feed the top of the tree. So they physically start eating that live tissue and make it impossible for the water to get up to the leaves. And so that's how it starts to decline. And in about a year or two after the larvae is in there, they change, it's called pupate. And that when it becomes the green uh, emerald ash borer and it then exits. And interestingly, it exits the bark and it's about the size of a pencil lead. It's very small and usually up at the upper level where we don't see it as much, but um, it's a perfectly D-shaped exit wound that they create when they leave. And then, then the new um, board flies on to infect additional ash trees. So it is an epidemic. Um, it is very serious and we want our citizens to be aware of this and that they need to make a management decision, which is to treat it, to let it die in place or to remove it. Now, 
let him die in place, it's really important to note that if there's a target in any direction this tree could fall, that could be your house, your neighbor's house, where children play, then letting it die in place is, is not a safe decision. Um, you will need to either treat it or um, remove it. And removing a healthy ash tree right now is not a bad decision because it gets so brittle, it's safest to move it when it's still healthy. And once the tree gets about 25 to 35% dieback, then one, the treatment um, that you would potentially give it really is not a, as an effective. And it's, again, you have to be able to get at that point, a bucket truck to the tree to take it down because people are not gonna climb up a tree that's that hazardous. So let's just say your tree could affect your house, but it's on a hill and you can't get a bucket truck. So that's why it's really proactive that you determine if you have an ash tree in your yard and maybe your neighbor's yard that could come, you know, affect you. So all these things we really want our citizens to be aware of so that they can make uh, proactive decisions on the management of their trees. Now, I know you've said that there's a lot at stake here and we're looking at the destruction of our ash trees if we don't get a hold of this. What could that impact be for all of us? Well, it's, it's going to have a huge impact on our ecosystem. You know, the ash tree, um, they make the Louisville slugger out of the ash tree, but losing just one more part of our, our diversity in our forest does have impact um, in all the insects that that tree supports. So um, treating the tree, um, there's the best way and, and the only way for larger trees to treat it is in this injection and you, you inject it all around the tree and it, it takes the chemical up into the tree where the bugs are. Um, but um, you know any insect that's living off that tree will be affected. However, the good thing, if, if you wanna call it a good thing, um, the insecticide goes into the tree and not out to other, you know, touching other plants or trees. Mm -hmm. So it's very specific um, to that tree that you inject. So that's, you know, um, something that we can, we take as a positive thing. Kashalia, what about the stink bug? I mean, I feel like I've seen a million of those in the building, definitely in my house. Are those considered invasive? Yes, the one we see in the house is called uh, brown marmorated stink bug. So that is uh, also an exotic invasive species uh, that is also came from um, Asia. And uh, we have them because during um, cool uh, winter time, like uh, late fall to early spring, they need uh, some place to overwinter. And they like to, uh, because this is not their native place, so they like to find a place that is um, suitable for their overwintering process. So they kind of like, trying to come into the house through some crevices uh, or the uh, holes or whatever we have through the vents. And uh, and you can find them everywhere. Somehow how much time you seal, how many times you seal them, they still it, it will be able to come inside. So oh, oh yeah. that's their, their nature, their, their life cycle, part of their life cycle. They need a what, different place to spend time during winter. What type of threat do they pose? So uh, brown marmorated stink bug is a polyphagous species. Uh, so that's very, uh, not like kudzu bug, it's, it's can eat many plant species, uh, crop species. So that's very uh, difficult situation because 
if they don't have one particular type of uh, plant species, they have something else to feed on and they are very devastating uh, pest species for agriculture. So initially found in uh, 1998 in Pennsylvania, they gradually spread to, uh, to from east, uh, east coast to other uh, states. And uh, it was really devastating for all tree fruits like peaches, apples, pears, um, so those kind of uh, large trees, even even sometimes uh, not uh, tree nuts like uh, uh, large nut crop trees also affected by brown marmalade and they can affect large number of vegetables, fruits, and sometimes ornamental plants as well. So it's a very uh, difficult to control bug. And even you spray, growers have to spray insecticide a lot of times and uh, that um, is not very effective uh, because sometimes they like they pretend they are dead and then a little bit later they can get up and walk away so what we do is spraying a lot of insecticide we kind of like destroy all the integrated pest management systems those cropping systems already established and we kill a lot of good bugs and then uh, the the because of that, or the other minor pests that were controlled by the good bugs or the natural enemies of, of those pest species become major pests. And then we need to use insecticides again and again to control them. And it's like a pesticide, it's called pesticide treadmill. It's never ending situation. And then once we spray too many times, uh, the, these bugs can become resistant to pesticide. And that is, that is a huge problem. That's a strong bug, and for a stink bug to be resistant to pesticides, it's kind of scary. Um, Jennifer, you know, yes, I'd like to get your reaction to what Kashalya shared with us. Well, I think that any of these invasives um, that are affecting, again, our, our quality of our ecosystem do impact it overall. I think um, that like for the emerald ash borer, we are really working to educate our citizens on what they need to do. And this is important, but just as important, we need to remember that our tree canopy is providing us so many benefits. And because we're losing so many hundreds of thousands of, of ash trees across the country, billions of dollars into this, we need to replant our urban forest and our natural forest. So in the woods, when an ash tree demises and falls over, there's sunlight. And the first group of plants that get the sunlight will grow. Well, we want that to be native. We want native plants to grow in that, not, not the um, invasive exotics um, that come in and, and take over. So that's really important. And then in our residential area, you know, our trees are working for us. They're providing stormwater management, air quality, they're the home to our birds and other um, wildlife. And so we need to be aware of replanting these trees. And in fact, Nashville has a campaign to plant half a million trees by 2050. And that's called, our campaign's called Root Nashville. We really invite all citizens um, to participate and also map the trees on the website. So that's something everyone can do to be proactive in helping our ecology and of our environment. If you're just tuning in, 
This is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking about invasive species this hour. Are you wondering about a particular bug or weed in your backyard? Tweet us at thisisnashville or email us at thisisnashville.org. So, Kashalia, you're an advocate of good bugs. What are some of these good bugs that are out there? So, um, so there are, the, the most common one is lady beaters that everybody knows, but I'm not going to call, talk about that. But there's another one called uh, green lace wings. They are similarly important as uh, lady beaters, a uh, little bit bigger than uh, the size of lady beaters, beautiful uh, insects, green in color, beautiful wing -like, uh, lace like wings. And they are most of those green lace wing species, uh, they are larval stages. So, immatures are predaceous. They are like small, look like small alligators. They can uh, uh, they can move like even hundred feet to find their prey, and they are they really like aphids. They are generalist predators, but they like aphids a lot. So because of that, they are called aphid lions. But some of the so the adults are not most of the species. Uh, they are not feeding on. Um, uh, they are not predaceous, but they feed on like plant uh, flower nectar and pollen. But there are some species of green lace wings that adults are predaceous as well. So I have some experience working on green lace wings. So when I moved to Tennessee, I started to look for them and we found a, a common species that is found in West Coast. We have them in our peach and apple trees and also another um, um, uh, species uh, in tomatoes uh, uh, feeding on potato aphids. So both of these species are Adults are predaceous. They are more very robust-looking insects, uh, very good predators, and uh, we have to introduce. I'm gradually introducing them to my stakeholders when I do my extension activities. Uh, so um, we have to know their what the larval stages look like and adults look like and how they lay eggs. So uh, people don't unnecessarily spray insecticide and kill them thinking that they are some kind of bad bugs. I've got a couple of them in my backyard and I like them because they're bright, bright green. Like you said, these beautiful lacy wings, they kind of look like tiny aliens and I know I'm not going to hurt them <laughs> at all. So I'm willing to bet that not all of us are going to be down to harvest good bugs to fight off the bad ones. But what can we do? If we recognize some of these invasive bugs in our own backyards, Jennifer, what are some tips? Goodness, you know, it depends on what your purpose of your backyard is there. I mean, who's using it? So you, it depends on how aggressive you want to be in treating it. Um, you know, having all sorts of bugs makes a um, environment very healthy. So that that's not a bad thing. I have friends that you know, go out and spray a chemical for everything. And I tend not to do that. I like the biodiversity there. Um, and as long as that the bugs, the bad bugs are not too aggressive, then we all can live in harmony. Kishalia? So uh, it, 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 just like Jennifer said, it, it's your purpose. If you're growing like, if you have a couple of uh, few, uh, 10, 15 acres, I cannot tell not to do anything, but if you are just growing something backyard, you are small farmers, I generally don't recommend using insecticides. So I say like we do other, other cultural methods, we can bring, grow some flowering plants that can attract good bugs so we can naturally control them, or we can even just monitor them and collect them in soapy solutions. Uh, we can uh, just, uh, uh, change our different, grow different 
cropping crops because if each year if you grow a particular type of crop um, and then a lot of bugs are coming, then there's no point you're going the same thing again and again. So you do this crop rotation and then crop sanitation is like, we can uh, remove the infested plant parts and always uh, encourage good bugs to come. And if you see them, uh, try to recognize them and not to, uh, not to, um, not to kill them because 90% of the insects or the, the bugs we see in our cropping system, they're not the ones that are damaging. About 10% maybe the damaging and others are maybe just passing by or just they are there. So, but when you're monitoring, if you don't know how to identify them, then you think they are all the bugs in your cropping system or backyard or your community garden, they are bad. And then you think insecticide is the only solution there, but there are a lot of other things that we can use before we go for insecticide. This concept called integrated pest management, YPM, where we use insecticide as our last resort. I'm going to have to teach my cats how to identify these bugs, the good bugs, <laughs> at the very least. After the break, we're going to talk about invasive plants. So set us up, Jennifer. What are some invasive plants that get under your skin? <laughs> well, you know, I'm passionate about trees. And with my work with Metro Nashville, I go out and look at trees quite a bit. And one of the things that is my issue is that so many of our larger trees are covered in vines. And these are invasive uh, vines like um, ivy or common ivy and euonymus. And so what is the, how's the tree? Does it have any structural issues? I don't know. I can't see it. And then after they get so large, the vines climb up and they're covering the leaves. So the leaves cannot photosynthesize and, and create food for that tree. So these are some real issues for our citizens in our neighborhoods in Nashville. That is horticulturalist Jennifer Smith. She was joined by Dr. Kashalia Amara Sekara from TSU at College of Agriculture. Thank you both for being with us. Thanks for giving me these tips. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll pivot from the creepy crawlies to the invasive shrubs and bushes. Tweet us your questions for our guests at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. So we've been learning more about the invasive bugs in our region, like the emerald ash borer and of course those pesky stink bugs. But what about invasive plants? Local parks and officials work to eradicate these species in our forests and along our greenways, and then they plant native species. It's a lot of work and it depends heavily on volunteers. Our producer, Tasha A.F. Lemley, got out with one group setting to, getting out to get their hands dirty this past week at Shelby Bottoms. All right, grab a shovel. If somebody wants to grab, there's a... Isaac Santos, he's an AmeriCorps volunteer serving with Friends of Shelby. The first thing you have to do is pull them out of the ground. So we've been doing a lot of that, but today we're going to be doing all planting. So we're going to be going out to areas where we have removed invasive species. About half of the volunteers who came out for this planting event, they're from Sunday Assembly, a secular congregation in town with no doctrine and no deity. Their mission? 
to live better, help often, and wonder more. Wendell Jackson is one member looking forward to some hard work. Well, the main goal is to get some calluses, you know, to look manly. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> a lot of the underbrush we see in a place like Shelby Bottoms was not supposed to be there. It's stuff like honeysuckle and privet, which are technically shrubs. So this right here, this is a big old privet. So as you can see, these things, they, these are like bushes and shrubs, but they transcend bushness sometimes. I mean, this is hardly a bush. He says some of these plants have a longer photosynthetic period that gives them an edge over native plants. Their leaves, they stay longer into the winter and they come out earlier in the spring. So before any of the native plants can grow up, they're out there catching all the sunlight and blocking it and, blocking it and growing up. Over a little more than an hour, volunteers plant about 60 tiny dogwood and redbud saplings, each with a little blue ribbon so they can track their progress, water them if needed. It's good. One. You got one planted there. Yeah, we need some water for it though. Yes. The hope is that over time, these are going to grow into guardian trees that will help protect the edge of the forest and keep the invasive shrubs from returning. Brian Kaunacki is one of the invasive removal crew leaders. He says everyone can play a part. Removing invasive plants in your own yard can make a big difference. They're gonna contribute to an issue like we're seeing in the park because they spread through birds and insects. Um, and also just by planting natives in their own yard, they can create such a hospitable place for all kinds of life instead of it just becoming a green place that looks pretty or, you know, a pink and purple place that looks pretty, you can look closely and see just like thriving life all over the place. Guardian trees, I like the ring of that. Joining me now to talk more about invasive plants like honeysuckle and privet is Andrew Bell. He's the executive director of the Nashville Tree Foundation. Andrew, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for having me. So. Tell me, how do you encounter invasive plants in your work with the Nashville Tree Foundation? Um, we mostly encounter them because um, we plant um, predominantly or mostly on public lands, Metro Park property and Metro Nashville Public Schools property. And I would say that the majority of the encounters we have are at parks properties because parks um, landscapes are somewhat managed and somewhat natural, and it's that buffer in between the two is where we encounter them most. Can you tell me more about privet? We heard about it in the in the segment previously. What is what's up with that bush? Um, privet is not used as much um, in the landscape as it once was, um, but it's still readily. Um, grown out there, but I think it's primarily because it was planted decades ago. People use it for a hedge. If you want to think of a, a green barrier between you and your neighbor that you can mound or square off, you can keep it at five feet, at 10 feet. Um, it was pretty versatile and very valuable from that standpoint, but um, the birds love the fruit and they spread it around and it really is all throughout Middle Tennessee. Okay, so let's talk about the Bradford pear tree. For those who aren't familiar, what do these trees look like? Um, so first of all, um, I want to just 
draw a distinction between Bradford pear and calorie pear. The species is the calorie pear and Bradford is just one variety or cultivar of the calorie pear. Okay. I always like to use the analogy of um, edible apples. If you think about um, Granny Smith and Red Delicious and Yellow Delicious, those are all varieties of apple. Bradford is a variety of the calorie pear. And in the spring, um, it flowers, has white flowers. It's completely in flowers in flower before the leaves come out. So it's just big round ball of white um, flowers um, before the leaves come out. And then in the summertime, it's glossy green foliage that then turns um, brilliant colors of uh, red and orange. So it's really um, very attractive tree, but um, we know when it comes encounter with pollen from another variety of calorie pear, then it produces viable seed and fruit that gets spread around by the birds. Why is this tree a problem? Well, it's just very adapted to our um, um, our environment here. Um, it is coming up in um, fields and fence rows. And when it's young, it has these really thorny shoots and it's just becoming a huge nuisance and taking over areas that would otherwise be occupied by native trees and shrubs. It's just super aggressive. And I understand, like you said, the tree is quite pretty. I can see why developers are planting them, you know, to create this desired aesthetic, which it has me curious. I mean, how often do we invite invasive species because, you know, we may not know what we're doing? Well, I think mostly um, our invasive species, at least for plants, were accidentally introduced. We thought that they were going to serve a good purpose for us here, um, not knowing that um, they were going to cause a problem. We're... We've educated ourselves a bit more about that um, over the last several decades um, that, you know, if you go on the other side of the globe, China and Japan, um, the ecosystems there have the same daylight. Some of them have the same environmental conditions. So the plants that come from those regions or insects come from those regions are automatically just adapted to our environmental conditions here. So I don't know that people intentionally introduce invasive species, but, um, there's always a chance that a plant could become invasive when it's not native. And so we need to be really careful about thinking twice about bringing non-native plants into our area and into any area. Our plants that are native here can be invasive in other parts of the world. You know, the purple martins at the Nashville Symphony are really nice to look at. They're pretty. But are they great for our ecosystem? Um, I'm not an ornithologist, I'm not a bird expert, um, don't claim to be. So um, I... I can't really comment on the Purple Martins other than the fact that I do enjoy seeing them. Um, I've gone downtown to the symphony and watched them when they're roosting late summer, early fall. Um, but there's a, I know it's a big discussion right now about removing the trees that they're roosting in, which is the Chinese elm, also known as the lace bark elm. And um, there's a meeting tomorrow to continue that discussion. And I just attended a meeting uh, was a couple of weeks ago about this. And I found it interesting that no one was talking about the fact that the trees that they're roosting in have great potential to be an invasive species, the lace bark elm that is. Um, it is on the invasive plant watch list for three states in the southeast. Six of the eight states that border Tennessee um, have documented that it's escaped from landscape conditions into natural areas. And it's an enormous problem in Washington, D.C. at the United States National Arboretum, where they've had um, large plantings for breeding projects is escaped from that, um, those fields, and is now all along the Potomac River. So it seems to be mostly adapted if it's gonna escape and become a weed problem in riparian species, uh, systems along streams and creeks and rivers. And those trees around the symphony are 
just blocks away from the Cumberland River. So um, I brought that up um, um, at the meeting that occurred a few weeks ago and um, it didn't seem that most people had heard about this threat, but it is one and it needs to be taken serious. Now, whether the trees get removed or not, that's not a decision, fortunately, that I have to make, but um, I felt like the invasive potential of the trees that are currently there should be part of the conversation. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We've been talking about how to recognize in the invasive plants around us. My next guest can help us understand how these plants pose a threat to our agricultural system. That means our food, y'all. Dr. Matthew Blair is a plant scientist from TSU's College of Agriculture. Dr. Blair, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Khalil. So how do invasive plants affect our regional crops? So we all have our favorite weed that uh, infests our backyard garden or our flower beds or um, a farmer's field. There are not many farmers left in Davidson County, but um, those that are, are often choosing uh, organic or more diverse method of agriculture, which is good. I, I take as an example, Green Door Gourmet, I always like to highlight their work, but um, all of us that plant seeds, um, we're using disturbed ground. And that disturbed ground is where weeds can come in. And, and some plants naturally do better in that disturbed ground. And, and even our crops have been selected to do that. But some of the big name weeds are Johnson grass and pigweeds. So those are two that I would mention as, as plants that inherently have a greater capacity. They actually go into a, not to get into the weeds, pun intended, mm -hmm. they uh, um, have a fixation of carbon dioxide into carbon four molecules rather than carbon three molecules. And this makes them inherently photosynthetically more efficient. And a lot of these invasives, I see a theme of that being a problem. Um, one of the trees that's that should be discussed as along with what Andrew mentioned is the empress tree. And it happens to be one of these carbon four species. How they just love to soak up the sunlight and, and soak up the carbon dioxide. So that might be a good thing, but in certain environments, it's a bad thing when it, it competes with our flowers and our veggies and our, our ornamental trees. How quickly can an invasive species take over? That's a good question. Um, you know, it depends on what human beings often do to help that invasive species along. So yeah, I've been driving around recently and noticing where the worst invasive species problems are, and they're often along the highways rather than the mm. streets. And so the streets, we have people taking care of the, the environment, their front yard, their backyard, but along the highways, you see the spread of some of these, um, even weeds that will get into your garden. So Johnson grass um, originally was from the Mediterranean and I looked it up and it's actually uh, original species name was, or common name was Aleppo grass. So it gives you an idea of how drought tolerant it is and how abuse tolerant it is. And, and so it is, um, was introduced as a forage and then just got out, produces a lot of seed. Um, it's a little bit related to corn, but instead of having husks, it, it just uh, spreads its seeds everywhere. And that seed grows up and then it has runners or stolons that um, go from place to place from the mother plant 
out creating these little colonies of, uh, of dangerous uh, uh, grass. So it's almost like a, um, a, a species that in its own adaptation is, is fooling with our own mechanisms as, as growers, as planters, as people that want to control the environment to control that, that weed, weed plant. So let's talk about the amaranth plant, which is a pretty pesky one. I don't think I've ever seen one. Can you tell me what does it look like? Okay, I think you probably have seen. It just goes under another name. It's called pigweed. Okay. And it was because originally it was eaten by all the pigs. So when every farmer had a backyard and, and a pig in their backyard, it wasn't that much of a problem. But uh, ever since we've gone into really heavy commercial agriculture with two main crops being corn and soybean in the state of Tennessee, um, we've started to have pigweed problems. Um, everyone's used to a little bit of pigweed in their, in their vegetable garden. So they'll have different species that are local, like the spiny amaranth, the spiny pigweed. Um, there's one really scary pigweed that's out there and it's called the Palmer amaranth. It's not um, from another continent, but it's been spreading um, across various states in the South and now into the Midwest. And so when you talk to US Department of Agriculture people and everybody that works at state levels with um, conventional farmers that have large acreages, uh, they're frustrated with this, this type of pigweed. What makes it so scary? Well, again, it has the carbon for photosynthesis, so it's very efficient. And each amaranth plant, I, I consider a wonder of nature because um, uh, in most cases, the weedy species have uh, a few male plants and a lot of female plants. Uh, so that's obviously an advantage. And then the female plants can each produce over half a million seed. So you get exponential growth when this tiny, these tiny seeds get spread around uh, on air, on, on, on water. Um, some amaranths can, can actually float on the top of water until they get to the next location they're gonna grow. Mm. And uh, they also get stuck in the feathers of, of birds like geese and, and ducks. And as a result, this Palmer amaranth has spread all the way up the Mississippi um, with the flyway, with the migration. So sometimes we have to be really smart about ecological concerns to know exactly what an invasive is and where it's going to go next. And we should also ask, why do we consider it invasive in the first place? You know, what are some of the most effective ways of preventing crop destruction when it comes to invasive plants? So, well, modern agriculture has taken the view that um, it's all or nothing, and it's better to uh, use the pesticides that were mentioned earlier for the control of some insects. In this case, they're using um, herbicides that control weeds, and um, herbs are just uh, small herbaceous plants rather than the shrubby species. But these herbicides can also be used on, on some of the shrubs. And, and so conventional agriculture and a lot of conventional um management systems have decided to go in and spray, for example, Roundup. And Roundup is a generalized killer of plants. As a result, it is very useful to the farmer to control weeds that 
haven't been um, uh, genetically modified to resist this herbicide. But um, the amaranths being that they produce 500,000 seed per plant have evolved very quickly to develop tolerance to these herbicides, including okay. Roundup. All right, so we've got just a minute left. And we talked in the last segment about how the emerald ash borer could have pretty big consequences in the coming years for our, our ash trees and really our climate as a result. So I'm curious, Dr. Blair, are there invasive plant species that are posing threats of this caliber to our climate now? Um, climate change is certainly causing um, species that were more semi-tropical to um, grow in more environments that are agricultural. So. Um, the pigweed, the Johnson grass does best in hot, dry summers, and they're increasing. As a result, they're all the way up in, in Minnesota and, and past Missouri. But um, you have the same thing happening with some tree species. And um, I think a whole nother show could be about the, the tree species that are spreading because of climate change. Wow. I want to thank you both so much. That is Dr. Matthew Blair, plant scientist from TSU's College of Agriculture. He was joined by Andrew Bell of the Nashville Tree Foundation. Thanks to you both for being here today. And thanks for helping me out. I just moved here. So it's good to know about these bugs and plants that are coming in. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, it's time for a pandemic check-in with our airport dropping the mask mandate and the city closing down one of our testing sites. Are we back to some kind of normal? And how do most the most vulnerable around us, how do they feel about it? Tweet us your thoughts at thisisnashville or email us at thisisnashville.org. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at WPLN.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, Tasha A.F. Limley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Ryan Jenkins, Dr. Jason Oliver, Vera Roberts, Hannah Hollowell, Rebecca Ratz, Dwight Beard, and Neil Anderson. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other.